Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and disembodied refugee, Elisa Quitney. And I'm story expert and daughter of Lilith, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Season of Mist Chapter 2, Issue 23 from the Sandman comic book series. Season of Mist Chapter 2 was written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Kelly Jones and Malcolm Jones III, colored by Danny Vazo, and lettered by Todd Klein. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Tom Pyre, cover by Dave McKean. I could stay here, abandon my quest, hang forever in the void, safe and cold and alone. No, we do as we must do. Time to wake up. In Season of Mist Chapter 2, Morpheus travels in dread as he moves toward Hell, afraid of what he will find there. When he gets there, he heads to Nada's cell, a little uneasy at how easy it all is, until he finds that she's not there. In fact, no one is there. In all of Hell. He finds Lucifer, who is acting like an old security guard closing things up for the night. Lucifer is quitting, closing up Hell, and getting the Hell out of Dodge. Morpheus is surprised, but goes with Lucifer as Lucifer makes his rounds, releasing the last stubborn humans who refuse to end their torment, and the last demons who refuse to accept that Lucifer is just quitting and that's it. As the final to-do on his list, he asks Morpheus to cut off his wings. As Morpheus does this favor for Lucifer, he asks about Nada, and Lucifer says he has no idea where she is. Finally, Lucifer gives Morpheus the keys to an empty hell and leaves Morpheus in charge. He says he probably should say he hopes it'll bring Morpheus happiness, but he very much doubts that it will. All right, Elisa, so here we are, Chapter 2, Season of Mist. We're rocking through this story. How do you like this issue? I love the particular nealness of this yes. of this issue's <laughs> approach i you know I, I was thinking that the the idea of lucifer abdicating his role and his kingdom is something that um we'll we'll discover a, a bit more in the notes another writer had the idea it's been played with <laughs> in other ways and one can imagine how it could have been handled differently. It could have been like a big action adventure where, you know, oh, you got to fight the demons and fight your way through the sinners and the good must conquer the evil with, you know, expert fisticuffs. Yes. <laughs> or, you know, it could be Game of Thrones and you get all of this mm -hmm. uh, rivalry between the high duke of, 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 of you know, insectivores and, and the, you know, duchess of, of squiggliness. But yeah, but no, instead, you get this really quiet kind of dinner with Andre. But instead of two friends, you get two adversaries and mm -hmm. they find this weird moment of bonding as they go around locking up hell. And I, I just <laughs> cannot think of another, particularly not another writer in, in comics in the 90s who would have gone so quiet and yet made it work so well. Oh, my God. Yes, absolutely. I love this whole thing with my whole heart. I cannot even express to you. Um, I love that the exact opposite of what we expected to happen happened. And yet it still escalated the story and made things worse, which is what you got to do. You have to escalate the story. So here we have Lucifer just being like, nah, man, I'm done. It's empty. It's done. Everybody's gone. And even though nature abhors a power vacuum, here we are. 
all of hell is just sitting there. It's vast, it's empty, it's done. And Lucifer is explaining all of this to Morpheus where he's like, and he's like, Morpheus, you're the one that broke me. You said you were coming. And I was like, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love all of that. And I love that we escalate, you know, Morpheus's story because he came there looking for Nada. This was supposed to be the big fight so that he could save her. Now he doesn't even know where she is. So we've ended up making it worse in that he's even further away from his goal than he was when he started, no matter how scary it was. So he trades one problem, which was fighting his way through hell and possibly being killed for it to rescue Nada for another problem, which is he didn't even know what he's going to have to do. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know where she is. He doesn't know what's going on. Um, And in addition to that, as if that wasn't enough, now Lucifer gives him the key to the place and says, guess what? Your fucking problem now. I love all of this. I think it's beautiful. I love that that moment where uh, Morpheus is taking off Lucifer's wings is so, I mean, so visceral and you see that pain and you know that lucifer isn't playing games now he's serious this is actually what's happening this isn't a you know a trickster hero kind of moment this is actually what is happening um and it's also shocking and unexpected and yet doesn't abandon the job of the story which is to escalate that central narrative conflict to keep these things moving um and in addition where you were expecting action and adventure and fisticuffs which are never really my favorite thing but i live with them instead we get this deep philosophical treatise on roles and responsibilities and heaven and hell and all of this stuff I honestly, I know every week I say this is my favorite issue, but this may be my favorite issue. I don't know what's going to happen if they just keep getting better like this. I'm just going to say it every week. (laughs) You know, and and you were talking about the cutting, the violence of cutting off the wings. And it occurred to me that it works not just because it takes what might, you know, when there's ever, whenever there's a talky sequence, something Mm -hmm. happens that elevates it, that transforms it, that takes it into a different place. And, you know, we're going to next probably talk about the cover and how that works as metaphor. But this is such a metaphor to me of how when we abandon or move on or transition, however we do from one role, it changes the very essence of who we are. And I I know this is weird, but I find myself thinking about menopause. You know, when you go out of Mm -hmm. that phase of being a mother or even a potential biological mother, if that's something mm-hmm. that, that happens to you, you know, it's it's this weird seismic change in your body with hot flashes, which I'm still having. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and so in some way, just as Lucifer was transformed from an angel with feathery wings, he's again being violently transformed. Yeah, no. And I mean, yes, so much of identity comes from what we do and the service that we provide, be it with our job, be it as a parent or whatever, you know, Um, and when when there is a physical change that marks that transition out of that identity, you know, as with us, with menopause and as with Lucifer, with the, the, the removal of these wings, this violent, bloody, painful removal of his wings, that transformation is so, is so marked and in itself violent, you know, even though this isn't an act of violence, this is an act of friendship. Dare I say it? It's so, it's so strange and weird 
weird and wonderful and I love it. Um, but yeah, let's go ahead and get into the cover now um, because I have access to two distinct covers here. Um, there is kind of a simpler, flatter version in the Kindle. Um, my, my box set, my physical box set of these is on back order. I am awaiting there, there. It's been weeks, and I'm okay, but I'm l really looking forward to getting that. But I also have the dust covers um, from uh, Dave McKean's dust covers book. Um, but I'm gonna, so I'm gonna go with the ones that's not in the Kindle version, but it's in the dust covers book. If you have the Kindle version, I recommend going. Just go online, do a search. See, but there's so many beautiful things in this cover. I would hate for people to miss it. Um, what we are getting with each of these chapters, too, is that instead of like, you know, we had titles for issues back, it was the collectors, it was 24 hours, you know, it was passengers, right? Um, so we had titles for all of the issues. This time in Season of Mists in this volume, it's just chapter one, prologue, chapter one, chapter two, right? They're not as descriptive. But what we are getting now is this summary text. Um, and for this issue, it's in which the Lord of Dreams returns to hell and his confrontation with the Lord of that realm, in which a number of doors are closed for the last time, and concerning the strange disposition of a knife and a key. I love that old-timey, you know, kind of a story summary, which makes the storytelling itself its own meta-aesthetic, right? Which I just, I love it so much. There's, and, and that's, it's, unexpected and different. You know, we have a system where you have an issue and you have a number of the issue and you have a title of the issue and the title is descriptive and you just move on. Here we have a non-descriptive title for each of these things and then these descriptive little summaries. Um, and one of the things that I love is that Dave McKean has taken the words from that summary and overlaid them on this image of Lucifer. So there's like three layers. There's like the overlay of the text, which is in this like kind of um, kind of almost undulating orange, red, purple, uh, which sort of has that feel of fire, you know. Um, then we've got Lucifer's face behind that, um, which in the in the um, in the book, he talked about how it was actually a reference to issue number four um, back in uh, in uh, Nocturne, or Preludes and Nocturnes. So we have that reference to issue number four, where uh, where Dream went back into hell to get his his helm, you know, which he is wearing formally as he goes into this uh, to this battle, which is not a battle. Um, so we have Lucifer's face, we have the text on top, and then behind it are all these very very tall buildings, right? Um, which also appear to be on fire. And I'm presuming are, you know, uh, hell. It actually doesn't look unlike the the big tower of cells where Nada was being kept. Um, and all of it looks like it's on fire. And then we've got this beautiful, and again, oh my God, I'm such a sucker for typography. I mean, whenever there's any typography work, I just love it. Um, so I, I love all of this here, I think it is, it's so interesting and beautiful. And the way that Dave McKean does this mixed media kind of stuff, even though all of this looks basically like painting, it's, it's layers of that, you know, and this was like before even Photoshop, right? But he's doing all these layers. He's doing all this work with it. It's really cool. Yeah. I think this, this may be like the first, you know, early, mm -hmm. early Photoshop. I know he's using also yeah. a lot of color Xeroxes. He was playing with that. I don't know if for this one in particular, but mm -hmm. you know, what occurs to me is that Dave, you know, if for people who aren't as familiar with his artwork, um, Black Orchid is, an, I guess, the first collaboration, full-scale collaboration between um, Dave and Neil. 
And you mm-hmm. can see this is a guy who can paint the most beautiful, realistic people and backgrounds. Mm-hmm. You know, this is he's not someone who has to go abstract. He's choosing it. And I think you can yeah. see that in in the interplay of of uh, all of these elements with with the face and and with the, as you say, that lovely scrim of these ghostly words and the hint of gold that's like illuminated manuscripts um i and i noticed that there's like right under lucifer's eye it's almost as if there's something peeling away as if the face itself Mm -hmm. is a mask and then there's something bruised purple and sort of golden underneath and Mm -hmm. uh i i don't know i'm i'm i love i love these i like you i love to see words and and I think mm-hmm. about all of those in in traditional Hebrew artwork as in uh, Islamic art. You don't get a lot of figurative yeah. uh, depictions. What you get instead is gorgeous calligraphy and shapes and abstractions. And you've got a real lovely nod to that here. All right. So let's go ahead and move from the cover into the actual interior art. Um, and you've done a little deep diving here. I really love it. Thank you. I I dive deep. So in the <laughs> script, when uh, Neil is writing to Kelly Jones, the artist, he says he wants a feel of hell that's a little bit got the vibe of Gustave Doré. You were you were telling mm-hmm. me I just before it, it Doré. Doré. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to call him Gustave because I feel insecure. Yeah. And uh, okay, so. So Gustav's uh, illustrations had a kind of fine etching quality. Uh, I believe it was the Victorian period. So you get that very fine, super detailed etching rather than defining things with the blacks, with the the negative space and heavy ink. Mm -hmm. And so that was something that Neil was suggesting might be cool um, because, you know, these were the illustrations that were most closely identified with Dante's Inferno. Um, and I found this lovely little piece from some art history a description online, um, characterized by an eclectic mix of Michelangelo-esque nudes, northern traditions of sublime landscape, and elements of popular culture. Doré's uh, Dante illustrations were considered among his crowning achievements. And uh, in 1861, one critic wrote, we are inclined to believe that the conception and the interpretation come from the same source, that Dante and Gustave Doré are communicating by occult and solemn conversations the secret of this hell plowed by their souls, traveled, explored by them in every sense. So that was Ada Ode, Associate Professor of Art History at Hamline University. I just loved it because that collaboration between artist and poet, artist and writer, I think is a little bit similar to what we get here, where there's this really wonderful and maybe not definitive in the same way, but certainly a, a, when you're thinking about what hell looks like, I think this is this is definitely uh, there in the canon now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I love and Dore really is perfect. And when you see the ways in which the like the the tower uh, where Nada was being kept, the, it felt like it was made of bone. It had, it does have a very Dore kind of feel to it. I really, really love that. Um, all right, so we've got some other things to talk about. Now that we've talked about the art, let's go ahead and move into uh, the story. And you've got some interesting things uh, to say about fame and kings and shadow selves. 
So I was I was doing one of those things that you do in the never ending pandemic. I was thinking, God, I wish I could go somewhere for like a transformative workshop. And I'm <laughs> looking at things and I there was one workshop that was um, about shadow selves and fame and how mm-hmm. uh, we tend to project in both positive and negative ways onto famous characters and onto monarchs. And we see them either as some elevated, idealized version of the qualities we'd like to have or some demonized version of the qualities uh, that that we really hope mm-hmm. we don't have. And I thought, oh, gosh, there is some element here where I, I see Lucifer and and Morpheus as kind of rock stars, rival rock mm-hmm. stars, monarchs. Mm-hmm. And in their talking, I, I think that part of what makes it interesting and perhaps felt is it, it doesn't just feel like an abstract discussion of monarchs and their responsibilities written by, you know, some guy in his 20s who was, you know, up late with a cold and a headache and, and had nothing mm-hmm. to do with such things. I think in a way, this becomes part of the whole Sandman ongoing discussion about success, fame, the burden and the responsibility mm-hmm. and the power and the charisma of power. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an ongoing theme. And so when you see the bond between, it's kind of like, I don't know, John Lennon meeting up with Mick Jagger, except I guess yeah. maybe they did. But, you know, it's, it's it, it, in a supernatural <laughs> yeah. sort of way. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And I mean, the thing is that when you do have that level of fame, when you have that, there's only so many people who can really understand what that experience is. And uh, and the more famous you get, the more that number shrinks, right? The choices of, of people who are going to get it, who are going to understand, um, becomes very small. And Lucifer as the head, like the head honcho of hell, right? You know, um, it's a very isolating experience, right? I mean, he talks through this whole thing about, you know, what it was that he did and what his responsibilities were and that he wasn't the one who made people do terrible things. They did it. He doesn't even decide how to torture them. They say, they come in and they say, do this. And he does it. He's, He's a service, right? He provides a service so that people can torment themselves and he calls them masochists, right? And then there are the demons, which they refer to as neverborn. I absolutely love that. I think that's such a beautiful, uh, you know, kind of, and it does have that sort of old timey feel to it, you know, um, as, as an expression of, of what demon kind are and that he's also responsible for all these demons and they're just fighting and, you know, creating drama that is unnecessary. And Lucifer's done. He's sick of it, you know. And he's also alone and isolated. And here he is, you know, getting those wings cut off. And Mazikeen seems to be, you know, a relationship that he has. But he is, as he is releasing that responsibility, he's also releasing her. He is letting her, she says, let me follow you. Let me go where you go. But he doesn't want to be anybody's Lord anymore. He doesn't want to be this. He wants to shed that identity. Taking off the wings is part of that, letting it all go. It doesn't mean anything. And as a meditation on fame and power, I think that's just a really, really interesting read on that experience because I think it all lines up. So much. And I, I mean, I have so we we both, I think, have more to say about Mazikeen. But one of the moments, 
You know, I didn't call this out as one of my favorite moments, but now I mm-hmm. think I, I, it's one of them where Lucifer mm-hmm. says to, to Dream, you knew me when I was an angel before the fall. Yeah. What was I like? Yeah. And I thought, I don't know how someone in his 20s did that. But I mean, have you done that with friends? I have totally done that where I'm like, you knew me when I was a teenager, when I was a kid. What was mm-hmm. I like? How did I seem to yeah. you? Yeah. Well, because you're a different person. I mean, we had that discussion last week, right, about the transformation of identity and how throughout your life you do experience a number of transitions and, and little deaths, right? You know, like you you are no longer that person that you were. And so when you're asking somebody, it's like asking somebody who knew somebody famous and saying, what were they like? You know, what were because you don't know. You don't know what you were because you were experiencing it from the inside. And you remember what it felt like, yeah. but you don't remember what you were like. Nobody can answer that but somebody else, you know. And so to have Lucifer ask that of Dream as Lucifer is trying to figure out where he's going to go next. And that maybe there is part of that kid who fell from heaven. Um, maybe there's part of that kid that he can somehow reconnect with, you know, go back to the beginning and restart, you know, um, which is kind of just like a really interesting idea for the, the, the guy who runs hell, you know, I mean, it's such a huge job and the idea that he gets to just quit and be like, that's it. I'm done. And let's not forget, we also have, I mean, I don't know specifically what but we have some one of the endless who did something very similar right there's one brother who was missing from the from the table um and so i think that this this from lucifer feels like it's something of a reflection on whatever that experience must have been for dream when his brother was like hey guess what i'm done i'm out of here right you are are so right at that there's definitely that resonance and it had me thinking i know this sounds a little silly but i was thinking about the princes william and harry and how mm-hmm. one you know their falling out was you know when when you know precipitated well not precipitated mm-hmm. but whatever conflicts they were having clearly something else must have taken place yeah. when when Harry left because it would be a whole order of of difference if William were to leave. And, right. And I get mm-hmm. the feeling that this is sort of in some way in this universe it is easier. I, even though it's unthinkable for Lucifer to abdicate, it is somehow easier than for Dream to because Dream after all remembers back when Lucifer was you know, an angel yeah. and, and was, was mm-hmm. someone different. He may not be as powerful as Lucifer, but mm-hmm. he is perhaps more woven into the basic fabric of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, definitely. I'm not sure about that, but I, I said that I think without thinking about though. it too hard, so... Well, I mean, that's kind of sort of the fun of the conversation is that every now and again, we'll come up with something like, I don't know, maybe that's the thing. And you have to think about it for a while. But I, I can absolutely see where you're going with that. And I think that's really interesting. Um, all right. So let's talk about surprise and joy and magic versus craft. What do you have here? Well, I came to a, a part of the script and I was thinking about how you uh, talk in your book about craft and magic and yes. um, and how, you know, Craft, in a way, is what you want to get better at so that you can let your magic come out. Yes. 
But this was a, a moment. So Neil uh, said that one of his earliest story ideas was this one of Lucifer abdicating, mm-hmm. uh, along with issue eight, actually, where death and, and dream mm-hmm. meet up. And for a while, he thought he couldn't do it. He was speaking to um, his friend and the, the writer, Rick Feach. And mm-hmm. uh, I think uh, Rick had, you know, the idea of doing a similar story. When Neil found out that he could, you know, it, it, that story didn't happen or it happened in a different form. So he could write his Lucifer abdication story. Mm-hmm. He wrote that the, his challenge was getting back that original sense of what I would call juice and urgency um, mm-hmm. and what he, you know, called surprise and joy. Uh, so I, I just love knowing the human side that, you know, he was starting to write this and thinking, oh, God, did I. Did I suck all of the juice out of this, you know, at some earlier point? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I definitely think he did get it back, but it's um I think that it's it's useful for writers to know that these are fears that, you know, have have afflicted all all, you know, writers since the beginning of since Lucifer was since still Lucifer. on the throne. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very funny because um there are, I, and I've, I've talked about this with a lot of my writer friends, is that the experience that you have of writing something does not necessarily translate to how it ends up and how it comes across. So I can say that I see the um, the delight, you know, in this story. I feel the energy of it, even though it's done so quietly. We're expecting this big bombastic fight. And what we get is this gentle philosophical, like, death experience right you know um which i absolutely love like i love all of it and i think that you can very much feel the magic in there um and what elisa is talking about is from my book how story works i talk about magic and craft and magic is the the stuff that's just you it's it's the great ideas that you have it's your sense of humor it's your sense of pathos it's your voice it's all of those kind of magical like you know ineffable things to borrow a word used a lot in uh in neil and terry pratchett's good omens um that that they're just these magical qualities that are you and then the purpose of craft is to uh to go in build the stage that your magic can dance on and get out of the way um and a lot of times we get so taken with the craft part of it that we forget the whole reason why we're building the stage anyway is is so that we have the room and the space to do something like this to do something that is so incredibly magical um you know and this what i love about this particular issue is that it is serving both both magic and craft, but the craft, the escalating of the story, the making things worse, the getting, um, you know, dream further away from his goal. Um, all of that stuff is just beautifully done, but it's so elegantly done. And then we step out of the way and we let Lucifer dance on that stage. It's just amazingly done. Like I absolutely love it. And yeah. And every writer struggles with all of that stuff. Every writer has that moment where they're like, Ugh, I don't even know if this is any good anymore, you know? Um, but there, but a lot of times, even when you feel that way as a writer, you're still managing to channel your magic. You just may not feel it in the moment that you're writing it, which is always kind of a very strange phenomenon uh, for me to see that happen. Um, and you know what? What's so funny is that you've brought in all of these. I'm going through your notes today. And I'm like, oh, my God, I haven't heard that name. I hadn't heard Gustav Dore. I hadn't heard that name in forever. And Taylor Deschardin is your next uh, your next person. I remember reading um, his books back in like high school and college. Well, I had I don't think I've even heard the name and I'm so glad yeah. you pronounced it before me. Uh, oh, I might not have gotten it right. I'm I'm 
I, I, that's how I remember it, but I'm not sure. I just yeah. want to say that Tailhard, um, it without the French accent, just sounds like a really good biker name. <laughs> yes, it really does. So, <laughs> so there, um, anyway, I my mind just went to a really weird place for a moment. I'm not even going to tell you the image that came to me because this guy's a Jesuit. Um, so Neil had said that the original spark for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, came from uh, a quote which he remembered as being something like, uh, I believe there is a hell because the church teaches us that there is a hell. I do mm-hmm. not have to believe that there is anyone there. And oh. so I decided to look up a little more of of uh, Hardtail there. And I found this quote, which I just loved. Growing old is like being increasingly penalized for a crime you haven't committed. <laughs> And uh, I just, I just, I I really would like, you know, somehow Mm -hmm. there needs to be the, uh, I don't know, there needs to be the follow up. Somebody should write a mythological story for for that one. Oh, I think absolutely somebody should. (laughs) I think maybe that should be you. I don't know. Um, Anyway, so I I absolutely love that idea. I do not have to believe that there is anyone there, you know, Um, and I, that is such a wonderful kind of flipping of the idea. When Whenever there's a, an idea like hell, right? We think about hell and it's an eternity of torment for not having behaved well while you had the chance to prove your merit as a human or however that philosophy works. Um, and the idea that Deschardins could look at that and say, all right, fine. You say there's a hell, fine. I don't have to believe that anybody is in there. I don't have to believe that there are people being tormented for eternity based on, you know, what was the lifespan during his life, 50, 60 years of life, right? You know, and your eternity versus 50, 60 years, um, which is always, I think, a struggle that uh, that I have always had with the very concept of hell. Um, it just seems a ridiculous, um, um, like, over-response to whatever anybody might have done. Um, but I do find that idea that that you can accept a certain thing But that doesn't mean that all of the things that you presume come along with that have to come along with that. And the ability to question those presumptions, um, I think, is where you get ideas like this, where you get ideas like Lucifer abdicating, which is something you would never think. You know, like, why would that happen? But when you hear his side of that story, of course that would happen. Why wouldn't that happen? Of course it would, you know. Um, Really, really wonderful. I was just going to jump in and say that Neil's particular interest a lot of the time seems to be taking concepts and anthropomorphizing them so that role (laughs) and character are one at the same. And then he does a little presto change out and separates them out again. Right. And what does that do? That's such a great, crunchy philosophical space to play in. Because we we intertwine, like we were talking about earlier, our role with our identity, with who we are. And when you don't have a role, you know, uh, figuring out who you are becomes so much more difficult. You know, it becomes very, very difficult to define without a, a strong definition of self. 
you know, uh, that can that can send you in a tailspin. Um, so the idea of of giving people, you know, giving these characters these very strong identities based on their roles and then stripping them of that. And we have that hint, delight into delirium. We have that hint that that transformation can can change. And while she is still the same person, she has like inc- like changed a lot because of the role that she plays. I, I love all of it. And I could sit here and play with identity stories. Identity stories honestly are my favorites. And I find them in such abundance in comic books. Um, and I just absolutely love playing around with all when you get into superheroes and again, like role and identity become a thing. Um, and then there's secret identity, which is a huge part of superheroes. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Anybody interested in that had a lot of those conversations over on Listen Up A-Holes where we talked about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, but, uh, but I just, I find the whole thing so incredibly crunchy and interesting and it, it makes this walk through Sandman, just like one of those things that's made specifically to delight me. I feel like this comic book series was made specifically to delight me and I'm really, really enjoying it. One of the other things, and I think you've pointed this out in the past is, you know, there are a lot of very crafty story techniques. And one of them is, you know, where we start with dream. Did you want to say something about that? Oh yeah. Um, one of the things that I found so interesting is that we open this up with Dream and Dream, of course, is traveling, right? And there's so, I don't know what it is about Dream traveling. I love a Dream travel montage. For me, there's just something in his travel that, and I think it's because of this thing that he does, um, that he stops and he thinks during his travel. So he is in action. He is in pursuit. He's doing something. But he takes this moment to to sort of meditate on what it is that he's doing. And one of the things that we have that we get from him during this travel to hell is we get that he is afraid and he is cold. And these are things that, um, first of all, we ha- I don't think we've heard him express real fear before. I mean, even when he was captive with Burgess, like he was annoyed you know, but we didn't get a sense. We weren't in his head that much during that, uh, the, the captivity, but that he was afraid. And, um, and the idea that to get a physical sensation from him, um, is also really, really weird. Um, and, and an interesting angle on him that he would feel cold. And it opens of course, with the cold wind, which brings me right back to the, to the bitch wind, uh, from collectors, right? The here we are again, and there is something about the the role of wind in Sandman. I think could be its own like thesis paper. <laughs> I'm going to be really interesting to kind of mark where the wind happens and what what it means, like what that representation. Uh, it seems to come in, you know, to usher in and usher out. It feels like it's something that opens and closes a particular movement within the story. Um, Really, really interesting. But to get the sense that Morpheus is cold, that um, that he is afraid, that he is feeling things, um, it's really fun. And it opens up a space of vulnerability for Morpheus that we don't typically see him access. Yeah, exactly. It's it's this feeling of vulnerability. And it sets us up in an interesting way. You know, anyone who's done acting knows that in any scene, one of the questions you ask is, what is my status relative mm-hmm. to the status of the person in the scene with me or the people in the scene? And, you know, we have 
really never seen Dream take um, anything but high status. I think the only time he hasn't has been with with death and and in that last sequence with where he meets with Hob, where he's mm-hmm. more as an equal. And so here he is, and he's definitely coming, feeling like he's on the back foot with Lucifer. Yeah, which is really great. And then we move into Lucifer. And we've talked about this a bit. But like, I actually, when I was when I was reading this, was reading, you know, Lucifer's midlife crisis, right? You know, Um, and, you know, it's so fun. We go into this expecting this one thing, but he is at this place where he is, what was I like? when I was 20? What was I like before I fell? Who am I? Um, And we have these really wonderful moments. Um, I love this where he's talking about before he fell. And he says, I cared about so many things. I cared so deeply back then in the cold at the beginning. And once again, we are starting in cold. In the cold at the beginning of things, I suppose that's why everything began to go wrong. That his, his deep caring is what made everything go wrong. And Lucifer, who has been, you know, he has fallen from heaven, right? He is into hell. He is running hell. He is the head honcho of hell. Um, And yet he doesn't look at it as his ascension to being the second most powerful being in the universe, which it's it's him and God is the only one more powerful than him, as we've seen in the text. Um, He doesn't look at that as like, hey, this is pretty awesome for me. You know, he has all this power, all this fame, all this responsibility. The only person more powerful in the universe is God. Um, And yet to him, it was when things went wrong. That was when he, if he had his choice, would be an angel still, would not have fallen. And I love that moment, that sense of regret. I thought I was rebelling. I thought I was defying his rule. No, I was merely fulfilling another tiny segment of his great and powerful plan. Um... Which is so interesting because here he was, he had, he had a sense of his own identity as being the one that stood up to God, that gave God the what for, right? And now he's like, no, this was planned all along. I'm just a puppet. He set, he made this happen to me. Like he is having this whole, this midlife moment where you look back and realize that all of the narratives that you believed in were not actually real, were not actually true. And as soon as the narrative changes, like a story is a series of events and narrative is the meaning that we give to that series of events. You can have a series of events stay exactly the same. And as soon as you change the meaning, as soon as you change the narrative and the way that you understand that, um, everything is completely different. The world completely changes, um, which once again, let me talk about the power of story. Unbelievable. So here we see Lucifer going through this midlife narrative shift where he is seeing things as not being what he had thought originally they were. And he's trying to figure all of this stuff out. And then here we are while he's going through this, trying to figure out what his existence mean. He's fucking up Morpheus's whole thing, you know, um, just it's so wonderful to have him um, kind of go through this whole process um, and the way that it's, it's shifting everything with everything staying exactly the same, the history not changing Everything else changes because of that shift in narrative. I love it. I love it. Here's the key to hell. I'm going to go get a Lamborghini. And there we go. (laughs) And there's something so wonderfully 
um, evocative about a skeleton key, about those old-fashioned keys that could open just about any door, it seems, because they mm -hmm. were, you know, these big, clunky, evocative things. This is nothing to do with anything, but when I was nine, I got to go to France and I was staying in some old chateau and the there was a skeleton key and you could go <gasps> around. You could still open other people's oh rooms with God. it. How amazing is that? Skeleton keys are incredible. And the, the design, too, when you think the design of the knife that he gives Morpheus to cut off his wings, the design of the... And this is... Mazakin's knife. There you Oh, it's Mazakin's knife. It's her knife. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And that goodbye with Mazakin. Okay, so I... Well, so I, touching. Let's talk about that. Okay. So I... As as I think you know, I love Mazakine so much. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think that because Kelly drew her so with such gorgeousness and such grotesquerie, where mm -hmm. half her, so, you know, for listeners uh, who are not placing her, she's half a beautiful woman and half a skull with some shredded bits of, of grunk. Uh, yeah, <laughs> hanging off, and um, and so uh, she she speaks in this very garbled way, you know. Mm -hmm. But I I know that uh, that at at one point Neil was forcing Tom Pyre, who was assistant editor, to read the dialogue, and if he couldn't make sense of the dialogue, Neil went back and made it more legible. Oh. <laughs> uh, but yes, I love her, and I love that moment where. Lucifer calls her. She says, "I, you know, I won't rave her, Rochefer, <laughs> and you know, hear my word." And you know, and and Lucifer says, "Give me your knife," and he pulls her into him with one hand, and it is, and you know, I'm a romance person. Mm -hmm. It is the kiss you or kill you trope. You think is he going to kill her with her own knife because she won't <laughs> leave, and he's bringing her in in this really. One, I'm using my hand to see. No one, no one can see. But if you could see me, my hand is masterfully like cupping the back of an invisible Mazakin's uh, yeah. head, and he brings her in, and he gives her the most passionate. There's tongue, kiss, mm -hmm. and and we see it from her grotesque side, and mm -hmm. to me that that is both horror and romance in one because what is it to be loved if it's not to be embraced with all of your, you know, with the side of you that's, you know, flayed? Right. Well, and the thing is, is that when you look at Mazikeen and you see that, I think that she is such a beautiful metaphor for how we all feel, right? On the outside, you know, we might be able to put on some makeup and throw on some stuff, but whatever it is we're feeling on the inside is still there and is still present. And so this half and half, it almost feels to me like the outer face and then the inner turmoil, right? That she is a physical representation of the, the face that we put outward to the world and then the inner turmoil. And Lucifer loves all of her and accepts all of her in that way. Um, so when I read Mazikeen as as metaphor, um, then it, it even it's even more beautiful to me the way that he doesn't even see 
Like he sees the term, turmoil, but it, to her, to him, it's just as beautiful. Both sides of her are just as beautiful. Um, and so I really, I love her. I love the way that she's so, so dedicated to him, you know, and like ready to follow him anywhere. And then he lets her go. And we just see her fade out. She just fades away. And wherever Mazikeen is going, she has a whole new experience waiting for her. Because who is she if she doesn't define herself through him? And now she's not going to be able to do that anymore. And I think that that may be a good thing. Because who wants to define yourself through another person anyway? Well, I I have to say that in the in the spinoff, their relationship mm-hmm. is not over. So when... Um, I think I, I've talked about this before that one of mm-hmm. the last things I did before I left to really go freelance was, um, you know, try to get the the Lucifer, which was the spinoff with with the, the wonderful writer Mike Carey. And um, yeah, so Lucifer and Mazikeen do continue exploring oh, their relationship, which I'm I mean, Again, I have this huge fondness for her. And I mm-hmm. I mean, I know I, I probably would have taken it into a full on romance. Uh, and <laughs> But, you know, then you'd have to create some conflict between them and have them. I, you know, I think that would be my fan fiction. It would be a mm-hmm. masochine Lucifer romance. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I because I, I want them to wind up together. It reminds me, you know, the Billy Wilder movie, The Apartment. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's this scene where I, I, I don't want to go into it too much, but uh, this character played by Jack Lemon is looking at a compact, a woman's mm-hmm. little compact, and the mirror is broken. And um, and it, it tells him something about this woman he mm-hmm. has been carrying this huge torch for. And he says, your compact is broken. And she, not understanding what he now knows about her, says... I like it that way. It shows me the way I feel. And Mm -hmm. there's something about this scene with Lucifer and Mazikeen and that scene in the apartment that just rank up there with, you know, all-time romantic faves for me. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. And I like seeing that. And I would love to see them together. Um, But I would like her, I would like to see her with her own identity, not just being a servant to him. The runaway demon. It'd be like the runaway bride, but with. Right, exactly. No, I think that'd be great. The the runaway neverborn. I love it. Um, One of the things that I found really interesting, too, in a little bit of world building is that um, we have this human who will not give up his torment, right? Um, So we spend a little time in the middle of all of this stuff. We spend time with Lucifer trying to free Breschow. Um, who is so tied to his identity as a right bastard that he refuses to leave his torment. And when I say tied to his identity, he is tied. His flesh is tied to this big rock. I'm receiving my just punishment for my crimes committed while I was alive, for my crimes were monstrous things. And he tells of all the terrible things that he's done. And indeed, they Um, they are pretty lousy. They're, they're, they're yeah, no, they're pretty terrible. They're pretty terrible. But I kind of get the sense that he's proud of them. Um, and and Lucifer talks about it as as you know a masochism that these these people come in. 
They did things that had nothing to do with Lucifer. He didn't tell them to do any of the terrible things. They did that on their own. They blame it on him, but it wasn't him. Then they come in and they say, I want to be burned or frozen or eaten or whatever. He's like, and then we just do. We just serve up whatever they've asked for. And then they torment themselves. And then he tries to let him go. And the guy has no interest in it. And then there's this wonderful thing because there is this sense of from Breschow, and I don't know if this is accurate to the intent um, writing, but as I always say, the reader decides what everything means. So I get to decide what it means for me. Um, but my read of, of Breschow is not that he is ashamed of any of these things that he did, but that he is actually rather delighted by it mm. um, because he tormented all of these people and it gave him a sense of, of narcissistic supply, right? Um, because he had had all this power over people. And then there is this wonderful moment with Lucifer, where he says, you've been chained to the slab for 1100 years. The world has forgotten you. And if there is anything that anybody can say that I think would, I am Breschel of Livonia. I did this. I did that. No one cares anymore, dude. It's done. You tried to get this immortality. I felt like Breschel was trying to get this immortality by doing these terrible things. And it didn't work because everybody that you you know had killed would have been long dead by now anyway so it's all out in the wash and everybody else has moved on and here you are i am breshawn nobody cares dude um and the idea that for a narcissist which is what i see in breshaw uh to be told that nobody cares that in itself is the actual torment for him not being chained to the slab. So much so. Now, I, I have this memory that Breschel of Livonia was a real person who became conflated with the werewolf myth. I've got Ooh. it in a book somewhere, but I couldn't find it and I didn't see it on the internet. What I did see when I was looking up Breschel of Livonia is this little conversation. It was clearly a British uh, conversation. I, I think it was from 2000 AD. And one one uh, person was calling Neil out like, God, that's what I hate about Neil Gaiman. Oh, it's so arrogant. Like, oh, not one mortal in 10,000. Oh, but you know about Breschow of Livonia, don't you, Neil? And, and I was thinking, oh, I forget this about the British. The British are, you know, the, like the, the flip side of their really good sense of humor is the British are so mean about things. And you never know when they're just going to bitch slap you. I, I think it's, I, you yeah. know, if all of this- Is it the British or is it the internet? Because- Oh, no, it's the British. It's the British before <laughs> there was internet. Um, they were mean before it was cool. Yeah. I, I once went to a dinner party with um, this, the, 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 it, it was like not my- I won't reveal, they were relatives in a distant way. Mm -hmm. And I was being sort of chipper and American and there were some tensions at the table. And I tried <laughs> to break it by saying something about Fergie, the Duchess of York, because I don't know, she just gotten married to Prince Andrew at the time, yeah. which mm -hmm. is now uh, even a dicier conversation. And right. and and uh, one person just looked at me and then turned to someone else on the table and said, let's try to just elevate the level of the discussion, shall we? Oh <laughs> and uh, no, so I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that the British are not... 
polite in the same way. But also, I think there's any time that, that if you if they think mm-hmm. that you are in any way pleased with something that you've done, they will totally <laughs> Lucifer to Brescia of Livonia, dude, nobody ah. cares who you are. Um, so, except they'll be like, you know, yeah. much sharper. It's sharper. There will be no dude. There will be... Whatever yes. the, the British equivalent of that. It will is. be a, con- a concise bit of wit just just cutting you down. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and move into Lucien's library. What do you have for us this week? Oh, I've got things. What? Yes. So many things. So one of the um, elements that I I thought was lovely was that early on in uh, when either just before this. Salmon was launching or early on, Neil and Dave McKean used to go shopping in London in all these little bric-a-brac and antique shops for these objects uh, that would, you know, was was a part mm-hmm. of their ongoing conversation about what the covers were going to be. Oh and God. I just, I, I thought about that and I loved it. And I loved just knowing, knowing that it, it was, you know, that there was this shopping spree. And I, I thought how um, the magic of London and found objects yeah. gets gets in there, um, especially, you know, we're now in a series, in, in a storyline, I mean, that feels exceptionally Victorian. And <laughs> it occurred to me that Victorian, Victoriana, Victorian antiques and tidbits are so prevalent in England and in London shops. Mm-hmm. You you know, it's really not hard to find relics from that time and, and fairly inexpensive mugs and, you know, lockets with deceased people's hair and uh, <laughs> whatever you, you like. So um, mm-hmm. I don't really have anywhere to go with that, except I just thought it was cool. That is really cool. I love that. I love the idea of these two guys just going around shopping in London, going to all the antique stores. I love it. <laughs> so my next little uh, tidbit is um, I realized that in this issue script, Neil talks about himself being a night writer that he, mm-hmm. you know, really gets going around midnight. He barely ever sees morning. The only time he can work in the daytime uh, is when writing is going exceptionally well. I am 99% sure that that changed. Uh, I remember Mm -hmm. also being a night writer. And I remember thinking of it when I was younger as time outside of time. No one's going to bother me and I will just write. Right. But like so many of us, my energy levels are now different and I'm a morning (laughs) writer, although morning gets earlier and earlier. But it Mm -hmm. it was occurring to me that that this was um, part of part of how I ended up encountering Neil. Oh, wait, here's here's the quote. I'm a late night writer, really. Late at night writer. Some people are daytime writers. Some people are morning writers. And I don't understand them at all. Some days I miss mornings completely. Most other days I'm useless. I blink at letters, wander around like a ghost, gradually gear up to doing things in the afternoon, and really start writing around midnight. And I was thinking, okay, so I was an assistant editor and I was doing things all day long. And then somewhere between five, six o'clock, I would be doing the stuff that wasn't so time sensitive. Yeah. That was right around the time when Neil was just getting started with work. So he would call, the office was emptying out. And that was how we started having conversations that were not yeah. just, you know, in the beginning, it was just, you know, you need to remember this, or you need to do that. Mm-hmm. And then it became these conversations about writing and, and you know 
mm-hmm. whatever the content of the script was. And um, I, I think it was just an interesting moment in time that across all of this space, we were connecting because of, of schedule in part. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's very cool. I love this idea too. Um, one of the things that that when I talk to writers is um, writers, especially writers who are just starting out, will often look at whatever it is that they are, and then think they should be something else. Like if they're a night writer, they want to be a morning writer. If they're a morning writer, they want to be a night writer. If they're a, a plotter, they want to be a pantser. If they're a pantser, they think they should be a plotter. It's this whole thing. And one of the hardest lessons to learn, I think, as a creative person, um, is that there is a natural hum. You know, there is a natural time of day. There is a natural way of doing things that you are aligned to, that your existence, your creative existence is just aligned to it. Um, and you should never fight it. You should always roll with that energy and let it be. If it's midnight, then it's midnight. Fine. Figure it out. It's okay. If whatever your time of day is, build your existence around that time of day, around that experience, around the way that you work. Um, because the thing is, is that you've only got so much energy. And if you roll in the direction of your energy, you're going to be able to get so much more done. If you fight your natural energy, you're just draining that pool. You know, so that you don't have it to work with. So I love this idea. And I love, too, where he's like, um, some people are morning writers. Some people are daytime writers. I don't understand these people. (laughs) But you see, I think it changes after wing-a-pause. Yeah, right. (laughs) You know, I absolutely know what the title of this episode is going to be. And I am so excited about naming that um, from from Wingapause. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, you know, I'm always a day. I've always been a daytime person. I'm always better in the mornings. My best time is from like 8 to 11 in the mornings. Those are my prime hours. And then after 2.30, that's it. I'm done with the day. You know, so I've got to get everything done in the early part. Um, but, uh, But, you know, it's just the way, like the way that you are is the way that you are and by all means accept it work with it don't fight it honor it it's a good thing whatever it is that you are is the perfect way that you are supposed to be um but i think that we spend so much time and this may be uh, this may be an american culture thing i'm not really sure but we spend so much time presuming that whatever it is we are is somehow wrong and that we should be whatever the other person is and that is absolutely not the case um so the one of the s- biggest magical things that you can do for yourself i think as a creative person is find out who you are, know that, accept that, and honor it. That is the best thing that you can do. You're going to be able to get so much more done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my last little tidbit uh, that I, I lay at your feet like a cat mm-hmm. with a, a uh, mouse I love head. it. You're like you're like a magpie. You just bring me all these little <laughs> glittery gifts every every Lucien's library. I, I love like it. that better than uh, <laughs> mouse head, actually. Okay, so Neil mentions that he was watching things on TV, to which I say I can't understand how I cannot even listen to music with words, Uh, but Mm -hmm. he was watching, first he was watching Excalibur on a small Uh desktop TV. I looked it up. That was 1981. (laughs) And he was thinking of doing his own take. And then I guess he wasn't that into Excalibur. He changed channels and discovered what he called a mini documentary about sadomasochism filled with people I know. 
So there was Clive Barker, <laughs> Donna, and then he says Donna will turn up in Sandman. So I guess this was maybe someone who inspired mm-hmm. the character of Donna mm-hmm. and uh, a young lady who works under the trade name of Mistress Raven. And then he was talking about how he knew Mistress Raven when she was sort of this cheerful New Zealander and <laughs> and then was, was dating someone else. And I was uh-huh. thinking how, I mean, I love that. I, you know. Yeah. But just how, flipping through TV and happened to see a whole bunch of there's uh, Clive Barker and Mistress Raven. Um, I love it. <laughs> and but it doesn't it seem like the TV was just spitting out you know apropos programs for him. Yeah. Well, and again, that's one of those things where you're like the universe works with you only you know? if you're watching TV after mm-hmm. midnight because I think yes. there's a really different. At least there used to be. I haven't watched TV after midnight in a thousand years. There is but... no after midnight. Everything's streaming. I haven't had a cable package with actual like timed programming in so long. I cannot even remember what it's like. But there is <laughs> yeah. something about having that and just flipping through the channels and seeing what fate delivers to you. Yeah, that's always really interesting. I think I, I might that. have to go back and watch Excalibur. I think maybe you should. I think maybe we all should. All right, Elisa, what's your favorite page? Uh, what is my favorite page? I think it's, uh, I'm going to go with Speechless Morpheus. Uh, it's oh, a, it's a rare writer who is not the artist, who gives the artist three panels of silent reaction. And I just wanted to call out for it as a fine thing to do. Writers, if you're not yes. the artist... You don't have to cram lots of words into every panel. And just seeing that made me very happy. I just, I loved, it was a double take or a triple take. And I, I it loved was it. a triple take. I loved it so much. And the expressions on his face where he was like, <gasps> you know, and it was just beautifully done. And it does express a lot using, again, that silence, that negative space. Um, it's, it's really hard as writers. We like to stuff words into every crevice every possible space uh but knowing when to have silence um is also really really important um for me i have to say it is the last page where lucifer cheekily gives morpheus responsibility for hal and then grins as he fucks off like he's just like here you go I wish I could say it'll bring you happiness. I don't think that it will, but best of luck to you, buddy. You know, and he's got this grin on his face. Like he knows exactly what he's doing. And it's not, it's not just leaving that's delighting him. It is leaving and being able to twist the knife into Morpheus at the same time. Um, The delight on Lucifer's face in that moment is honestly one of my favorite things. I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, um, it, it shows that, you know, he may not be evil, but he's not nice. But he's not really good. Yeah, no, it's so it's so beautifully done. All right. So what is your favorite part of the story? Oh, I think I already talked about it. It's Mazikeen and Lucifer's big kiss that um, that kisser killer trope, mm-hmm. you know, you and I both know, uh, uh, Anne Stewart, Chrissy. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Anne Stewart is her, her writing name. She does such a good kiss you or kill you. Oh, yes. uh, when I, mm-hmm. I discovered her quite late. And when mm-hmm. I, I just, again, you know, there are things that I enjoy reading in romance that mm-hmm. I would never want to experience in real life. Oh, of course. It's a fantasy space. <laughs> and yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, like, here, give me your knife and I'm bringing you clothes. That's not something I, you know, would at all find attractive. <laughs> mm hmm. But on the page, oh, it just makes my heart sing. Oh, God. Anne Stewart is 
probably, I think, maybe the best writer who does that. Um, the the kiss you or kill you, the slap slap kiss, she's got all of it. And it's wonderful. She does these wonderful suspense stories. Um, so I would highly recommend to anybody. I just series. look up Anne Stewart. The Ice series is amazing, is amazing. I love her historical. Her historical stuff, funnily enough, tends to be a little bit funnier and a little bit lighter um, oh. than the than the deep. She, but she has so many different, there are so many different shades of Anne Stewart out there. And I cannot recommend them enough. Um, she is just delightful. She's a delightful human being and she is a delightful writer. And I absolutely love her. Um, I have to say my favorite part of this story is that moment where Lucifer's like, no, I quit. Like Morpheus is building up this whole thing. He's scared. He's cold. He's going into hell. He's just trying to save this woman and undo the bad thing that he did. But he knows that Lucifer is going to kill him and it's all terrible. And it's this whole big buildup. And then Lucifer is just like, I quit. And Morpheus like, uh, okay, I thought this was going to go another way, but uh, okay. And he just rolls with it. And there's something about that moment when, when every expectation is set up, pulled out so that there's, there's, you're, you're gearing up for this big fight that doesn't happen. And the swing just gets lost in the air and you tumble over. And then the next thing you know, despite the fact that what you were expecting was terrible, didn't happen, everything's still worse somehow. It's just... So great, and I, I love that moment so much. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish, and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast, or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, and Stephania. And this week's special message for our power producers, you've been chained to the slab for 1100 years. Haven't you tortured yourself enough? To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or cut off Lucifer's wings. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, where you go, I will follow. I must stay by your side forever. We'll be back next time with Season of Mist, Chapter 3, Issue 24 of the Sandman series. Until then, what will they do on Earth, I wonder, when the dead start coming back? <laughs> <laughs>